I am a fan of Harry Potter. I don't know how many of you are, but I am happy to admit it. The story, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, has an interesting part in the story where Harry and his friends are at the school of wizardry and witchcraft, and they go into a Professor Lupin's class in order to learn how to be wizards. And as they go into Professor Lupin's class, Professor Lupin is going to introduce them to a particular creature called the Bogart. Now, this is an interesting creature. It is described as a shape-shifting creature that turns into and manifests itself according to whatever the onlooker's greatest fear is. And then they're to learn an incantation and use their wand and render it ineffective. Well, Professor Lupin calls forth a very shy and meek kid named Neville Longbottom. And as Neville Longbottom comes forth, scared, Professor Lupin unleashes the Bogart from this mirrored wardrobe, and as it steps out, it is Neville's greatest fear, Professor Snape. And if you know who Professor Snape is, he's got the black hair, the ominous, scary-looking face, and he's sauntering toward Neville Longbottom, and he's shaking, afraid, and then... The professor reminds him, use your wand and use the incantation ridiculous to turn him into something silly and rendering him ineffective. And so he does, and Professor Snape then looks like he's dressed in women's clothing, and everyone laughs, and it's ha-ha, a great scene. Thinking about that story this morning, we might ask ourselves, is the God of the Old Testament a scary bogart that we are to use some New Testament gospel incantation to render ineffective and to render no longer scary, to produce no more fear in the heart of man. Is the fear of God irrelevant for 21st century people? Or is it just some Bronze Age manipulative technique to control the minds and actions of ignorant pre-modern people? Are we just supposed to do, as many would have us think, to shed our fears and realize our full potential as people? Well, this morning's text, as I hope you saw as we read through it, addresses this subject of fear. It addresses it very clearly for us. And the question we must ask ourselves as we come to this text is how are we to think about fear? Especially as a church, where we talk about joy all the time. How are we to think about fear in relationship to these things? So this morning, I want us to do three things as we go through this text. I want to look and see how fear emerges out of the text. I want to try to define what fear is. What are we talking about when we see the fear of God emerge from the text? And then what we're going to do is spend a a short time applying that to our lives. So that's kind of the trek we're going to take this morning. So Israel's fear, as we look into the text, there are four episodes through this text that help us to see fear emerge from it. And the first, as as I said, is Israel's fear. In chapter 14, verses 10 and 12, we see Israel's fear emerge it says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel were afraid of many things in this circumstance. Last week, Cole pointed us to chapter 3 and verse 17, 
or chapter 13 and verse 17, where God said, I'm not going to send Israel the short way out of Egypt. I'm going to make them take the wilderness route. And you remember the motivation that was expressed in that was because if Israel were to see the warmongering people on the short route, they would be scared and then flee back to their slaveholders in Egypt. Well, Israel, that the motivation there was not for Israel to avoid conflict. The, the point of that was that Israel's going to be scared and God does not want them to escape. And this, this plan of God trapped Israel. He trapped them into a circumstance in which, unless there's a miracle, they're all dead. They're all gone because Egypt is going to come after them. So Israel realizes they have been put in a circumstance in which their death is imminent. And if not their death, a very angry Pharaoh coming to, have, to get one over on them is after them. And so the people are scared, which is why they say, why didn't we just going to bring us out here to bury us in the wilderness? Why not go back? We at least got to live in Egypt. They're frightened. They're scared. They fear war. They fear death. They fear Egypt. They fear Pharaoh. They fear that their lives are essentially over as they know it, as they're trapped between the sea and the mountains and this place that God has directed them. The second place we see fear emerge out of this is Pharaoh's fear. In verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Now, he doesn't say there, I'm scared. But this is the language of fear. It's of regret. Oh, my gosh, what have we done? And they're afraid of the consequences of letting Israel walk out of Egypt. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what it was they were afraid of. Pharaoh was the king of a nation. He was a ruler in a nation, and his entire labor force that was free just vanished. Ten plagues had just rained down on Egypt, destroying livestock, destroying their economy, destroying his reputation as the ruler and God over his people. And the other God, the God of the Hebrews, just won, and the people waltzed out of Egypt. And they didn't just walk out. They plundered the Egyptians as they walked out, taking their gold and their silver and everything else. The people of Israel made a mockery of Pharaoh. They, de they dethroned him in the Egyptian people's mind, and Pharaoh was afraid. He was afraid that he was going to be ruling a people who were in economic ruin and who didn't have to do any labor, and now all of a sudden they're going to have to go out and do the slave work themselves. And Pharaoh is afraid. He's afraid for his reputation. He's afraid for the socioeconomic status of his nation. He's afraid for his religious position in the hearts of his people. He is concerned that he has been, his reputation and his rule over Egypt is now at an end unless he does something to take it back. So he pursues Israel. We also see in this text the fear of the Egyptian army. The Egyptian army, according to, uh, according to Pharaoh's direction, is pursuing Israel. And as they pursue Israel, they and Pharaoh with them, not fearing God, but fearing things other than God, their own socioeconomic status and reputation, ascend the hill of the Lord, as it were. 
They waltz into the power of God. God has split the sea, and Israel is walking across it on dry ground. An amazing display and beautiful power of God's salvation and power, and they just walk into it. They're not afraid of this God that is holding the waters up to their right and their left, and they're pursuing Israel. But then something happens. Something happens in verse 25. Well, verse 24 and 25. The dry ground underneath the Egyptian army as they're pursuing Israel becomes muddy. And the chariot, the wheels of their chariots start to slow down and clog up with mud. And as that happens, they start to remember, oh, the Nile turned to blood. The frogs, the gnats, the locusts, what have we done? We have just walked into the hands, into the trap of Yahweh. And they become afraid, which is why verse 25 says, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians, and they are full of fear. They, know, they now see, oh my gosh, we have just walked into the power of the God of the universe. And he is our judge. And they shake in their boots. But for them, it's too late. It's too late. And they die. And we come to the end of the chapter and we see Israel's fear again. But notice the difference between Israel's fear at the beginning of the chapter in comparison to the end of the chapter. It says Israel saw in verse 31 the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They're no longer fearing the power and the threat of Israel or of, of Egypt. Now they fear God, having seen what God has done. And one might say, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between Egypt and Israel? Because they don't look all that different at the beginning of the text. Israel's fearing for their own lives. They're fearing for their own socioeconomic status. They're fearing for their own worldly material things. They aren't fearing God at the beginning. And clearly, Egypt didn't fear for them either. So why did God kill Israel, kill Egypt, why did he kill Pharaoh? Why did he kill the, the Egyptian army and not then also kill Israel? They both failed to fear God at the beginning. So what is happening? Well, what we see is the emergence of God's fatherly care for his people. This is what happens in this text, is you see a clear distinction between God's love and God's care as father for the people he's covenanted and committed to love, stretching all the way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis, and God standing as judge over those people in Egypt. Which is why in chapter 14, God, rather than judging Israel for their fear of something other than him, commits to teach Israel to fear him. In chapter 14, in verse 17, sorry, verse 13, we see God committing to teach Israel. He says, fear not. Don't fear me coming to you as a judge. Don't fear me coming to destroy you. 
But fear me, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. God is committing to teach Israel to fear him the proper way, the way he would have him, them fear him as a father. And God does that. And Israel there responds at the end of the chapter. So here we see how fear emerges behind the scenes. It's the backdrop that stands looming over the splitting of the Red Sea. Fear is what God is aiming at in this. He is seeking to order and direct the fears of the people properly toward him. So we must understand, what the heck is God talking about with fear? What does it mean to fear God? Because it looks like the people were saved to fear God. So what is he talking about? How does this work? Well, the subject of fear is brought up throughout the Bible 300 different times. It's brought up 300 different times throughout the Bible, so clearly it's a pretty big deal to God. And unfortunately, there's not one monolithic understanding of fear throughout the, t- throughout the Scripture. God talks about it in various different ways, and it would take me hours to go through all of them with you this morning, and you don't want that, and I would like to eat lunch at some point. So... We're going to get a very narrow slice as to what the Bible says about fear. Because there's very, there's so much it says that we don't have time to nuance it to the degree that I would self-indulgently enjoy. So, we're going to look very simply at what God has to say about fear as Moses understands it and is using this concept in the book of Exodus. So, What is fear? There are two Exodus passages we're going to point to. Exodus chapter 9, if you'll turn over there just a couple pages back. In Exodus chapter 9, in Exodus chapter 9, God is about to rain down hail on the people of Egypt. God has promised, he he wants uh, Egypt to let the people go, and he said, if you don't let them go, I'm going to bring hail. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened, so God's going to bring hail. He's going to bring hail to destroy the the work of Egypt. And in verse 20 of chapter 9, this is just such an interesting passage. It says to us, Then where whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So we see something of a parallelism here. The use the, between the word fear and pay attention. Those who feared the Lord were like, holy cow, God said he, that Yahweh guy that did the frogs in the Nile said he's going to bring hail. We better protect our livestock. We better protect our slaves because he's going to bring it and they're going to die if we don't, do, we, we don't do something. And so they were saved. But those who did not pay attention left their slaves and their livestock in the field, and they perished under the hail. So there is this, the way Moses is using the concept of fear here is in a sense of paying close attention and revering what God has to say. We see this also happen in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20. Exodus 20, now this is one that will make your head spin. At least it did for me when I read it. Moses comes to the people and he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, 
that you may not sin. So we see you're not supposed to fear, but you're supposed to fear so that you don't sin. How does that work? (laughs) Well, I don't have time to go into all the nuance of it, but what we see here is that there is a connection between the fear of God and obedience to God. Between the fear of God and taking his law and his word seriously, paying attention to it, and responding to it in obedience. And I believe that this is the way in which the book of Exodus chapter 14, as Israel's crossing the Red Sea, this is the way in which Moses is using the term fear. That the people feared the Lord. And we know this because of what happened Well, the way in which the book of Hebrews describes it. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 describes Israel as obeying the voice of God in faith as they go across the Red Sea. They were fearing God. They were fearing God. The fear of God is a much bigger subject than just reverential awe and obedience to God. But here, it is essentially treasuring God's words Treasuring God's opinions, treasuring God's view of the world above all things. Treasuring his word so that we would repent of sin and obey his voice overall. And the question is, is that an appropriate thing for a 21st century Christian to appropriate into their life? And the answer is obviously, yeah. Yes, we are to fear the Lord in this way. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 tells us to work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. We see Jesus teaching on this in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. We see Paul talking about it again in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, where Paul there links being holy as a Christian, your growth and sanctification, as being a matter of growing in your fear of God. In other words, God is not a Bogart to dispatch with. He is not someone where to use the incantation of the gospel to go, I'm free, so free I no longer am to fear. Calvin, John Calvin in the 1500s wrote and defined fear in this way. He said, Fear is here used for that reverence which keeps the people in the way of duty, for they were not only affected by dread, but also attracted to devote themselves to God, whose goodness they had so sweetly and delightfully experienced. I think that definition is helpful because it draws out some of the nuances of fear in this respect, because when we think of fear, we tend to think of something that essentially repels us. When you think of fear, you think of being cowering and being repelled back from something. This is not the way in which, it's not the only way in which we are to understand the way fear is here used. Fear, it not only, it does repel. And in this situation, it repels sin. But it's also inviting and attractional. Now you might say, well, how in the world does that work? Because that just seems contradictory to us. Because we would think at the end of the chapter, oh, well, Israel's just cowering in fear before God. But that is not what's happening in this picture. Fear is, yes, 
retreating from sin, but it is being attracted toward God. And I labored to find a good illustration for this. But I think the best one that comes to mind is an illustration from a very inappropriate movie that I probably should not name that I've, and admit that I've seen. But the concept will work here. <laughs> a guy is out, is finishing off of work. He's a night, you know, good-looking, you know, 20-something-year-old married man, finishes work early on a Friday afternoon, and his buddies from the office come up to him and say, hey, we're going out for drinks after work. Why don't you come join us? And what does he say? I need to call my wife. Now, what happens in that moment? You start hearing sounds of whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Oh, got to call the boss. You're not the ruler of your own home, are you? And they start to begin to chastise him, make fun of him. Ah, you weak guy, why you got to call your wife for permission? I thought you were the man of your house, right? And they begin to make fun of him, but he calls her. And as he calls her, she says, ah, you can go out, that's fine. I I made dinner, but if you want to go out, that's fine. And what does he do at that moment? He says to his friends, nah, I think I'm going to go home with my family. And then they really lay it on thick over him. Now, what is happening in that circumstance? The man fears his wife. He fears his wife. And his friends know it. And they give him a really hard time about it because they would rather he fear them. Because when you fear someone, it glorifies them and it demonstrates that you treasure them. And when a husband ignores his wife and says, oh, I'm just going to be working late tonight and doesn't come home and doesn't eat dinner with her. He's not only failing to engage in communion with her and their family, but he is also doing something that demonstrates to her that he treasures the presence and the personalities and the experience of other people other than her. And that causes her to feel lesser. So the fear of God, we need to understand, it does not merely cause us to retreat and repel sin from us, but invites us into communion with him the way in which a husband who fears his wife in that circumstance is brought into communion with her. He's brought into coming home to seeing her. And it's why every good husband does call their wife and does say, yeah, I'd rather be with her than be with the guys. That's why we do that, is because we fear our wives. Now, that doesn't mean wives get to go home and say, hey, you got to fear me, right? (laughs) Though that would be satisfying. But it is something, it is something that we experience on a daily basis. Our fears demonstrate what we treasure, what we pay attention to, what, and it demonstrates what we are wanting to commune with. Now, how does all of this apply to us? And I think some of this is obvious as to how this applies to us. But we could think, we might be tempted to think at this moment, okay, so it's all been all about idolatry and false idols all the way up to chapter 14, and now all of a sudden God cares about fear, God's changed the subject, and we've moved on from idolatry, and now we're going to talk about fear. 
Because if you remember, we looked at how each of the plagues was a direct assault on a particular God. And now here we are. Oh, now we're going to talk about fear. We need to understand that fear and idolatry go hand in hand. Fear and idolatry are one and the same subject. God has not changed subjects. He's not moved on from idolatry. He's gotten to the actual heart and to the root of idolatry that he is wanting to remove out of the people of Israel's lives. Idols make promises. They call for communion. They give warnings. The God of the Nile promised life. The God of the Nile said, if you worship me, you sacrifice to me, I will make your crops grow. You will have abundance. You will have flourishing life in the land. The God of the frogs that Carlos talked to us about, that weird God, the frog God, what was he going to make sure that you could have children and grow your family tree and have a, a, a presence in the world? And if you don't sacrifice, if you don't pay attention to me, well, you'll be barren, you'll be alone, you'll be destitute in the world. Idolatry functions in the realm of fear. It functions in the human heart directly where the fear of God functions. Idols compete for your fear. A good way to identify idols in your life is to simply ask yourself, what am I afraid of? Because when you identify your fears, you identify your God. You identify what you're worshiping, what you're paying attention to, what you treasure. Money promises security, promises ease and safety. We don't bow down to wooden blocks in America. We don't sacrifice children on arm, uh, bronze arms like, they, like other cultures did to the Baals in the Old Testament. But we have idols that we worship, and money promises the same thing that the Nile promised the Egyptians. Sex promises self-fulfillment and being your true self in the world and you will be a better person if you just serve and obey your inward longings. And if you obey them, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. You'll be one with yourself. You'll be loved. And if you don't, you'll be unloved. You'll be mentally tortured. And here what we are to understand is that God wants our fears. He wants you to pay attention to his promises, his warnings. He wants you to treasure his words over all things. If you recognize that there are idols in your life, it doesn't do any good to set them on fire or to get rid of them because you'll still worship them in your heart. You'll still treasure them in your heart. You have to kill the fear of them and replace it with a fear of God. For some of us this morning, even myself, this can be a terrifying reality. Because I recognize in myself that I am so easily drawn to treasuring the promises, the words, and the hope of false idols. I'm so easily drawn into it. But the hope is that it's not too late. Israel did not fear God at the beginning of the chapter. But God was committed to work to teach his people to properly fear him. 
when God says, stand back and watch, what he's saying is, you're not alone in your fight against idolatry. He wasn't going to let Israel go back to Egypt. He trapped them there to force them to see his work that they might learn to fear him the way he has called them to fear him. And so you are decidedly, decidedly not alone in the fight against idolatry. God has promised to give you a new heart. He's promised to give you new desires. He's promised to fix your inappropriate fearing in your life. If you desire to obey God's voice and heed his law, then you, know, you should know you have a God that desires it in you more than you do. And he is committed to accomplishing in it in you. This is what God saved Israel to do, and it is what God is saving you to do. And you should rest in the hope that God is going to accomplish it in you. So then the question is, how do we do that? How do we grow in the fear of the Lord? How do we grow in the fear of God? Well, in verse 30 of our text, we're just going to focus on one thing. I hope that's okay with you because I think this is sufficient. And it should occupy the rest of your life. So we'll just do one thing. Verse 30 and 31. Notice the repetition of the word saw in these verses. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. If you want to grow in the fear of God, you should look and behold your God. This is what we see happening in God's promise in earlier in the chapter where he says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you to do. For the Egyptians whom you see, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to shut your mouth and watch. This is what God is committed to do for us. He is committed to put on display his character and his power so that we would see him and go, like the Egyptians did in the mud, oh my gosh, that's the God we serve. And he will grow in you through that a proper fear of him. You can sit back and watch God work. Now you might say to me, well, Luke, there's no Red Seas being split today. I've not seen mountains be moved. How in the world are we to do that? Well, there's a reason why God found it wise to record his work in history in the Bible. There's a reason for that, because God has not determined that he is going to do all kinds of world-shaking miracles like this throughout all history. He has determined to use his spirit to help us illumine, to illuminate our hearts and our minds the reality of his power through what he has written in his, word, in his word in the Bible. And so as you read through the Bible, you will see God's power on display from beginning to end. And as you sit there and as you read it and as you see it, God is committed by his spirit to growing that fear in you, Not only as you read the story of Israel crossing the Red Sea and seeing the salvation that God accomplished for them, you see it all throughout 
the Old Testament. And you see it preeminently in the New Testament where God does the most amazing thing, where he accomplishes the work of the gospel on our behalf, where he overcomes sin, overcomes Satan, he overcomes death itself, and rises from the dead. This is why, as we read this morning in our liturgy, Psalm 48, verses 12 through 14, where God says to the people, look at me like Zion, like a city. Come in and inspect me. Look at the walls. Look at the citadels. Look at the rafters. Inspect me. God says, God invites us in to investigate him, to taste him, to see him, and to see him that we might know that he is God and he is to be feared. And as you engage that, as you engage that in, in worship here at the church, joining other people in worshiping him, hearing his word preached, watching the, the work of the gospel dramatized before you in the Lord's Supper that we're about to do in a moment. As we think about it in relationship to baptism and watching people rise spiritually from the dead out of the waters, God is interested in displaying visually to you the power that he has, the power of his name and the power of his hands. So know this, God will fight for you. You don't have to sit there and drum up fear of God. Like, I'm really trying. That doesn't work. But God has committed to doing it as you gaze upon what he has done for you and what he has done for his people. So we should look, as did Israel, as they walked by the walls of water. We should be amazed at what God has done for us in the gospel, that we would revere him, that we would pay attention to him, that we would treasure him and his word above all idols and above all things. Let's ask him for his help now as we enter into worship again.